0: podcast has bad words you're listening to the minimalists this is the maximal episode we're here with Lori gottlieb she is the author of maybe you should talk to someone her new podcast is called dear therapist it's in season two right now we'll put links to both of those in the show notes Lori, there's so much we want to talk to you about Mm. today um I don't even know where to start. Let's, let's start with my problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I want to talk about trauma with you for a little bit, because it's I, I found trauma fascinating as, as a topic in general, mm. because what might be traumatizing to me may not be traumatizing to Ryan or you mm. or vice versa. Right. And, and so if, for folks listening at home, if you saw our last film on Netflix, I, I talk about something fairly personal in there. My very first memory, is of my father extinguishing a cigarette on my mother's chest. And I know that sounds traumatizing, but I don't feel particularly traumatized by it. There are other things, though, like my mother's alcoholism, which was traumatizing to me, even though it wasn't as sort of violent or I mean, it was chaotic for sure, but it wasn't as as intense. You wouldn't think of it uh, being something as, as traumatizing. Can we talk about trauma and how it affects different people differently?
1: Yeah, trauma is such a big topic. When you talked about that incident with your father, I was thinking about how a lot of people with trauma, they dissociate. So mm-hmm. when you say you don't feel anything or you don't feel a lot around that, mm-hmm. it's it's a protective mechanism. It's like our psychological immune system kicks in yes. and mm-hmm. says, I can't this is so intense that I need to numb out. Mm-hmm. I need to dissociate. I need to go somewhere else um and so that might be part of the reason also depending on the age you are you will process things in different ways developmentally Mm. that the other thing about trauma that people don't realize is that it tends to be passed down from generation to generation and it lives inside of us even if we did not experience the trauma ourselves okay so like if for a big external trauma like um you know, a big war that, that, say, your grandparents lived through.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, that that gets passed down somehow to your parents and to you in their, their very being. It's like epigenetics in a way. Okay. And, and so if, if it's not processed. So unprocessed trauma is the problem. And people don't even know sometimes that they're carrying trauma. And they don't understand why they get really angry like out of the blue, or they right. get really sad, or you know, they do, or they're really anxious all the time. And often there's unprocessed trauma.
0: Mm. Mm. Okay, okay. So, so it could be that an event like that is traumatizing, right? But we either maybe we've already proce- processed it in a way, and so it's no longer traumatizing, or it could be that we never processed it at all, and so there's still something to process. Mm. So it, it is possible to sort of process the trauma and, and move on. I'm assuming.
1: Well, when we talk about move on, I think about it like grief, right? So people always say, you know, someone dies and it's like, it's a year later. Why aren't you dating again? If you're after your husband died, you know, those kinds of things. It's like, he's still dead. Uh Um, That's why. Um, And so I think that it's, it's, it's moving forward. It's Mm -hmm. not moving on, but it's moving forward with grief. And I think the same thing with trauma is that you don't necessarily move on from it, but you move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's still, it's part of your story, but it, it, it lives in you differently. It's a, it, it's a different way of, of manifesting in the story going forward.
3: Mm. Mm. Uh, so if your mind disassociates from the trauma, I'm assuming like it has to, I mean, maybe I guess nothing has to be anything, but it's very likely that it's gonna come out one way or the other through different mechanisms. So yeah.
1: Right, so it's, it's the things that are unspeakable that get in our way the most. Mm. And so there, there are things that we don't necessarily have access to because we push them down so much, but they will come out in other ways. Even with, let's, let's not even talk about trauma, let's just talk about garden variety anxiety or something, or something stressful in your life. If you don't deal with it, if you pretend that it's not there, you will see it come out in other ways, like um, too much food, too much wine, um, a mm-hmm. short-temperedness, insomnia, those are all the ways that it will manifest if you don't give those feelings some air, our feelings need air and they're going to find a way to leak out some somehow some way.
2: Mm,
0: that's a great way to put it. Yeah. 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 I, I like that as an analogy. The, the feelings need air. In fact, when we were writing our new book, love people use things. One of the things that was sort of cathartic there is we talked about a lot of things we had never talked about in the past. Mm-hmm. So, so whether it was some childhood trauma you know, or there's infidelity, in uh, both of our in uh, relationships, we we've, we've both had you know, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, physical abuse in our childhood homes, but also adulthood. You know, drug and alcohol abuse, um, you know, obviously consumer abuse, consumer abusing consumerism, consumption, uh, abusing food as well, overeating. Some things that there's a lot of shame around some of these topics, and I th- I believe the shame is because there's a cultural narrative that these things are not only bad but they're infrequent. Whereas the truth is, the things that we wrote about in here, they happen so frequently, mm. we just don't care to admit them in public. So we repress that, we hide it, we pretend as though it doesn't exist. And then shame manifests as a result. And in a way, shame can be traumatizing, right?
1: And toxic, we talk about toxic shame. Ooh. So I think that shame is incredibly toxic because what happens is then you are sort of judging yourself for the experiences that you've had. Mm -hmm. And then you're judging yourself for the way you're reacting to the experiences that Mm -hmm. you've had. And that leads to this feeling of aloneness, this feeling of separateness, this feeling of otherness. And we all know that for emotional health, we need a feeling of connection. We need to feel like we belong, we we can connect with people that we aren't so other. Mm Um, And so I think that that becomes a a big deal. That's why in in my book, and maybe you should talk to someone, I, I follow the lives of four patients. That, that I work with as a therapist. And then I become the fifth patient Right, where, um, a you know, therapist,
0: her therapist. I'm, right. So I go to a therapist because mm.
1: I'm going through something. And originally I wasn't going to include myself, but I did because I say at the beginning of the book that my most significant credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. And so I didn't want to present myself as the expert up on high. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I do what I do. I'm trained. I, you know, I have my license. I've passed my boards, all that. But um but i'm a human being first and foremost in that room and i think that the more that we can talk about that the more that we can normalize the human experience um you know the more that we are going to get through this get through this thing called life in a much more smooth and easy way Mm. and and i think if we accept the fact that life is hard that that actually you know on, on the paradoxically makes it easier
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, during the minimal episode, we talked about love people use things and the New York Times bestseller thing. And I believe the question you asked is, you know, why not be proud of that? Mm -hmm. And, and why I I can answer that is for me, it's like, well, comparison, comparison is the thief of joy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're inherently, I'm inherently comparing myself to other people. If, if I'm saying, well, my book is selling better than you know uh, all the other books except for these top ten or fifteen books or whatever, right? For this particular week, right? And so it's it's the needing of that that is really the thief of joy. Mm. Well, I
1: don't I don't think that being proud of yourself means comparing yourself to other people. It's it's something that you did that you are proud of for for just for what you did. Right? And so what I mean by that is when, you know, the the problem with comparison is that you either feel inferior to someone else, like you feel I'm not as good as, look what they accomplished.
0: Mm -hmm. um, Or it puts me on a pedestal. Or
1: Mm. you feel better than, which makes it seem like somehow you're a better human being because you did this. Um,
0: And that's gross to me. So for me to put myself on a pedestal feels really gross. But
1: that's different from being proud of yourself, right? So you could say, I wrote a book Um, you know, it's touching a lot of people. Yes. It's it, lots of people are reading it. Yes. Um, it made the New York Times list. I'm really proud of that. You're not comparing yourself to anyone else. You're just mm-hmm. saying, I'm really proud of what I did, what I accomplished.
0: Sure, yeah, sure, yeah. The New York Times list it just seems so. I mean, maybe there's another thing because I, I know. I mean, we have a few friends who have gamed the system, e- even. Yeah, and thankfully, our publisher has enough integrity that they, they, there was no sort of gaming of the system, but. I also realized that like, it becomes a, for lack of a better term, a vanity metric for some people. Hmm. And I don't want it to be a vanity metric for me, right? Now I do understand, before we started recording, Ryan was saying something, or maybe it was Sean, I'm not sure, but hey, this is something that is, is going to be helpful for some people. And for other people, they realize like, for whatever reason, that metric for them now makes it a more appealing work. Uh, to dive into. So maybe if it is an entry point, then great. Yeah.
1: Well, I think, yeah. I mean, you know, we were talking a little bit ago about, so my book, maybe you should talk to someone. Um, the thing about it was nobody, people thought nobody would read it. Okay. Like I, I couldn't even get people to buy it, you know, the publishers to buy it. Cause I was supposed to be writing this parenting book from this Atlantic piece that I had done that went viral. And then I was supposed to be writing a happiness book, which was making me depressed and miserable, <laughs> <laughs> which the irony was not lost uh. on me. And I was like, I just want to bring people into the therapy room so they can see the human condition as it really is, which I think is beautiful and heroic. And mm. to watch people you know, grow and change and struggle and you know break out of their shells and yeah. get you know fi- figure out what their patterns are and and all of this and um, and so when for me you know the fact that it sold over a million copies and it was on the New York Times list for over a year and all of that is something that yes more people will buy it because they they you know because like it says New York Times bestseller on it or they you know heard about it or whatever it is but that's great because then yeah. more people hopefully will be helped by it or moved by it or Mm -hmm. touched by it or see themselves in it and i think the same thing with your book so i i just think there's this weird thing where you have to be Mm self-deprecating because if you're not then suddenly you're a narcissist
0: Mm. yes yeah and
1: and it's it's not it's it's neither of those things well i want to
0: talk to you about narcissism uh because we have this article we do this little segment called more about less yeah and i just want to add one thing before we go
3: into it though it's possible to be proud of the New York times bestseller status without needing it. And and so, so maybe you're, maybe you are worried about like letting it get to your head, but if you approach it with the right attitude, I mean, you don't, and and to her point, I mean, people are, this is an important book we wrote. Like I I think it is important and it's, it's, it's it's, it's not meant to give advice, but it is meant to inspire. It's meant to, to help in a way or uh, inspire. I think is probably a better word. mm -hmm. And you know, we walked into the bookstore signing books. There are thousands of books to choose from. It's hard. It's hard to pick out a book. Sure. And what that, what that, uh, New York Times bestseller label does is it does make it more accessible. It inspires more people to be like, Oh, maybe this is something I should read. And you know what you and I, or I'll speak for myself. I think people should read it, Mm. you know? So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's something that you can totally appreciate and, and and not need it.
0: Right. I I agree with that. And, I I want, maybe here's a better way for me to describe it. I don't want to derive my significance from from Mm. whether or not it makes it to some list. Right. And, 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 and that's, maybe that's where my struggle is.
1: You say significance. I think the word is worth that you don't want to derive your worth from a label like uh. New York Times bestseller, uh. right? And you don't want it to make the book's worth dependent on that, that the book is worthy as, as something you wrote that was meaningful to you and you hope is meaningful to other people. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, just because it gets that New York Times label doesn't make the book more or less worthy and it doesn't make you more or less worthy.
0: Mm. Ooh, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's beautiful. That's yeah. so beautifully said. Tweet that podcast,
3: shot. <laughs> <laughs> <No>, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's taking the value judgment out of the New York Times. It's just recognizing
0: it for what it is. Here's another problem I have with it is I genuinely don't care. Mm-hmm. And and there's something where I know that a decade ago, I, I wanted it so much, I would have like stepped on an old woman's foot in order to like get her out of the way so I could sign her book. You know, it's something I mean, it's so, so that um, I, there was a piece of me that really wanted that. Now that was, uh, again, deriving one's worth from externalities, from achievements, from status, from whatever. It's the same, it's the same symptoms of what we did back in our corporate days. So Ryan and I, we grew up really poor. Hey, we're going to, we're going to become happy by making a lot of money in the corporate world. Right? That doesn't work. And then, so it's like, I want, I don't want to trade the, well, you know what? The money, the 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 job title, all of those things didn't work. But you know what will work? New York Times bestseller, baby. The key to happiness, <laughs> right? For a
1: week, for a week. Right, right,
0: exactly. And that's the problem. Our, our friend Rob Bell, he was on the cover of Time magazine. Mm-hmm. He said, "You know, I have to realize, though, the next week you're not on the cover of Time magazine." Yeah, right.
3: Well, I mean, when our publisher reached out to us uh-huh. and was like, "Hey, congrats, guys, for being you know on the New York Times bestseller list." Your response was perfect. You were like, "Hey, awesome. Glad we could get here. I'm looking forward to like, you know, the next, I forget what you called it, milestone." Last. Yeah, milestone. Uh-huh. And and so, uh I don't know, man. It's just it's 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 a healthy there's a way to have a healthy attitude towards it. The same thing can be said for like when you go to the minimalists.com about the minimalist, what does it say? Mm-hmm. We've been in the New York Times. We've spoken at Harvard, Google, Apple. Like mm-hmm. th- those things it's not the show mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a ticket to the show in a way yes where it gives us the credibility and it, in, it inspires more people to 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 listen to to read uh what we put out there so i mean i'm sh- i'm sure that's going to go on our
0: webpage of new york times bestseller you know sh- sure yeah although I, all those things are kind of gross to me yeah. again i realize it's my own proclivity i
1: i don't think they're gross uh, okay I mean, I I think it's like if, if you're, ch- you were talking about your daughter, right? Yes. So if your daughter like got the lead in the school play yes. and she was really excited about it, would you say, don't be so excited, that's gross? Mm. Well, no. It
0: has no, the potential to right? be gross. That's really what you're looking at. I, I wouldn't, but I would encourage her to be, to, i mean she's eight so it's really difficult to have these conversations with an eight-year-old but also some profound truths are had when you try to explain something to an eight-year-old because mm-hmm. you you can't fluff it up with any of the the nonsense and the sort of yeah you know, the, the the didacticism of, <laughs> of philosophy and all these things it becomes these these core truths we have to explain to an eight-year-old yeah. but i i would I, I would show her the dangers of excitement. You know, the, the Buddhists get oh, this wait, right. Oh, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. Mm. Okay, here's yeah. the thing. I the dangers of excitement <laughs>
0: for sure,
1: With, without a doubt. Oh. I mean, so. oh, okay, okay, wait. I just I I have to I have to jump in here because please do. Okay, yeah. because the thing is, we don't actually let ourselves feel that. Mm. Uh-huh. We we repress our joy all the time. We think joy is indulgent.
0: I think we confuse right? joy with excitement. I think they're two completely different things. Sure. Did
1: you not feel joy when you found out that a lot of people were reading your book and you made the New York times list? No. You didn't. Okay, no. so that's, that's, there's something going on there. Mm. You know, for, but I felt
0: joy when I was writing the book yeah. for sure. Right,
1: right, sure. But then knowing that you're making an impact on people mm-hmm. That I would think would bring you would bring you joy.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I would maybe the, here's the way I, I would delineate it. Not with Ella, who's eight, and I would I would find a more rudimentary way to describe it. But um, when I talk about the 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 dangers of excitement, is the the need for it, the the constant mm-hmm. sort of dopamine rush. Mm-hmm. It's the reason that we, right. we tune into Instagram constantly. Or whatever. We pacify ourselves with pleasure, and we can we confuse it. the pleasure is not wrong. It, or, or bad yeah. or, or evil or anything like that. It serves us when it is a byproduct of something meaningful, but when it becomes the pursuit, the pursuit of happiness is the path to our discontent. Well, that's
1: right. That's why I couldn't write the happiness book because happiness as a byproduct of living your life and is in a meaningful way Mm -hmm. is is what we all want. But happiness as the goal in and of itself is a recipe for disaster. That's
0: exactly what I'm saying. Right. But
1: the thing is like you get the role in the school play. You worked hard for that. You accomplished that. Mm -hmm. You should take that in and be excited about that mm-hmm. if that, if that's her feeling about it yes. however she feels about it is is how she feels about it right and and so i think that when you know we accomplish something we're so almost hesitant to acknowledge it because you know some people do that because they feel like oh something good happened but but something bad will now happen right Uh like they have this superstition like now the piano is going to fall from the sky um, because you know something good happened they they don't trust joy we actually there's a term for it cherophobia which is fear of joy and in in maybe you should talk to someone there's this rita is one of the patients that i that we follow and every time something good happens to her she gets really anxious
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: she feels like, uh oh, I don't trust this. Because when I was a child, she she thought, mm-hmm. you know, every time I felt good or, or my mom was present or whatever, then she would be depressed again, and it would go away.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I can't trust the good stuff because it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. So there's that too. Uh, a lot yes. of people have cherophobia. Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about this whole thing? You not being excited about that. And Ella being excited about getting, you know, the, the main role in a the play. Uh-huh. There's
0: nothing wrong with either of those things, right? Yeah. I now I tend to value stoicism, not not the capital S stoicism, but but the state of being stoic, uh, more than than most people. Yeah. I'm a basketball fan. I don't know why, because it makes me miserable. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk about excitement, man. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's my point. And and, and so, uh, in fact, my, my my favorite memory of any basketball game. There is this shot, and maybe, Jordan, you could insert this into the video <laughs> somewhere. So, the one of the best players in the NBA, his name is Damian Lillard. He plays for the Portland Dame Trail. Dame time. Yes, yes. Yes. So, uh, I think it was 2019 playoffs. He hit this logo three-pointer over Paul George, and... He hits that shot, and most people would do the jumping in the air for joy, and he just has this stoic look on his face. He looks out at the crowd, mm-hmm. and he just waves goodbye to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And to me, there was something so, I mean, stoic, for sure. Like, he interesting. Had this stoic, they all rushed him, yeah. and like, you see him in this, this moment of everyone is excited around him. The look on his face is just wow, deadpan, and you know, it's I interesting. I loved that there was something, so, be, because he was so unshakable. Yeah, that I, I value that unshakable. By the way, I don't, I don't really possess a lot of that unshakableness. I do tend to get rather anxious. Of the yeah, duo here, just playing ping more. pong, and you'll see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: I, I get you know, upset. you know, it's interesting though. This is a different pedestal that he was on. This is a this is a different like yeah that's right I did my job see you later Oklahoma it's a, he's all he's doing is putting himself on a different pedestal with that
0: unshakableness it's not it seems natural with him though right sure. I mean you, you you sound it sounds like you're somewhat familiar with with, with Dame but yeah. he seems he does seem more naturally stoic than most other entertainers. Mm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like think about Tony Parker who like, you know, you never, <laughs> there was never like a facial expression on him at all. That's true. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I think that when you are, you're inhabiting your, your magnificence. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't even just saying those words, people will just be like, Oh, that's horrible. Like, I don't even want to hear those words. Right. Yes. But, but you know, it's like, it's like appreciate your excellence appreciate your magnificence. Yes. Why do we have such a hard time doing that? And then then immediately thinking, if I feel that at all, if I can take that in at all, then I'm a narcissist or people will think I'm a narcissist, right?
0: Yes, well, let's pivot over to narcissism. So I've got this article here for our more about less segment. This is from Scientific American and it is called the light triad versus the dark triad of personality. So folks listening at home, likely know what the dark triad is but i will i will uh, read it here for folks who don't and maybe you can help shine some light on narcissism versus some of these other traits here so uh there are two great quotes at the beginning of this article one the first one's from anne frank she said i still believe in spite of everything that people are truly good at heart and then there's a second quote from ted bundy <laughs> what's one less person on the face of the earth anyway <laughs> Jeez. So talk about light triad versus dark triad. Let's talk about what these are. Why are dark triad people so seductive? Why do they get all the research attention? I asked my college my, my colleague David Yaden, in his office. Immediately his ears perked up. And he asked me to send him papers on the Dark Triad, remarking that remarking that he hadn't heard of the Dark Triad, but it sounded fascinating, thus proving my point. When I went back to my office. I emailed some papers to David and my colleague Elizabeth. In a quick email response, David simply wrote back, Light triad? Question mark. Now my ear is pricked up. Was there such a thing as a light triad? Had it been studied? The dark triad has already been well studied. My first discovery it was first discovery discovered by Delroy Plahouse and Kevin Williams in 2002. The dark triad of personality consists of Number one, narcissism, which is like entitled self-importance. Number two, Machiavellianism, strategic exploration and deceit, which is one of the reasons we wrote Love People Use Things, because quite often we are just using people and loving our things. And the subtitle is The Opposite Never Works, right? And, but unfortunately, we sort of go through life using people, and, and that is Machiavellianism in a way. And the third is uh, psychopathy, which is callousness, cynicism, et cetera. While these three traits had traditionally been studied most among clinical populations, i.e. criminals, Plothouse and Williams showed that each of these traits are clearly on a continuum. We are all at least a little bit narcissistic, Machiavellian, and psychopathic. Mm. I I agree with that. And and so the problem that we have is we moralize everything. So we, we, we all of a sudden say, narcissism, bad not narcissism good, mm-hmm. but that would make us all bad then in a way. Right. And so let's talk about, let's talk about these three characteristics in the the dark triad. Where do we start?
1: So, um, and maybe you should talk to someone. The first patient that I introduce is this guy, John, and he's like 40 and married and has some kids and he's very successful and he's an asshole, basically. Yes. Um, he's he's insulting to me. He's rude. He's he thinks everyone is an idiot, and he's smarter than everybody else. Mm. He's very abrasive and hard to like. By the end of the book, people like him the most, not because of the traits at the beginning, but because you see why he behaves in the way he does. Right. You know, sort of like what's underneath that, and where's his humanity, and and everything else that sort of led to that, mm. and how he changes. Um, And so I think when you talk about a continuum, I think that first of all, narcissism um, is, you know, a lot of people use it very loosely, especially on the internet, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone's a narcissist Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, as opposed to like, someone didn't, didn't, you know, wasn't compassionate toward me. They're a narcissist, you know, (laughs) somebody Mm -hmm. um, put themselves first, they're a narcissist. Uh Um, So I think we have to sort of differentiate, but I, I, I talk in the book because of John about diagnosis and the dangers of diagnosis. I mean, there's obviously really important uses for diagnosis. It helps us to understand a person in a general sense, but you don't want to lose a person behind a diagnosis. So Mm. like with John, I could have said, well, he's just a narcissist, so he won't respond to therapy because most narcissists don't. Mm. They don't want to look inside. They don't want to take responsibility. They don't want to do the kinds of things you need to do Mm -hmm. for therapy to be beneficial to you. Um, but I didn't just say, oh, he's a narcissist, so I'm not going to see him. And I think that we can really lose people's humanity behind their presentation. Mm. So, and what I also say is when we talk about like personality disorder, so narcissistic personality disorder is a personality disorder, borderline personality disorder gets a lot of, you know, attention, um, you know, people who are very volatile, very unpredictable, they can go into rages and then they can be very charming and seductive another minute. Um, that's borderline. A lot of people, there, there is a, a thing where people, couples who get together are sort of like, and this is a big generalization, narcissistic men and borderline women. They tend to couple up. Mm. They tend to be, that tends to be a pattern. Do we know why? Um, because they, they both fit into what the other person needs directly. So the, the, the borderline person has this, ter- this like terror of abandonment and reenacts that with the narcissist, who of course is completely emotionally unaccessible. So they're reenacting that. Mm. Um, The narcissist needs someone who is like, definitely needs them, needs them so badly. And that's the person who's, you know, afraid of abandonment, so they actually complement wow. each other in that way, in a very unhealthy way.
2: Right? Mm. Um,
1: but you see that all the time. So when when they get divorced, which they inevitably do, um, <laughs> or, or or they just have a terrible marriage, mm. um, you know, you always hear like the guy is like, "She was batshit crazy," and mm. it's like, "But you were so horrible to her because you're a narcissist." You know, you fed each other's worst um, vulnerabilities, mm. basically, um, and so you you see that a lot. But I would say that we all, what I say in the diagnosis section, and maybe you should talk to someone, is that um, we all have like a tad of this or that personality disorder, like yes. a trait in on in, um, one of our worst days. Uh-huh. So like on, on your worst day, have you ever acted in a way that you are completely ashamed of or that you wish you could redo? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has, yeah, right? Yeah. So you may act like someone who has this or that you know wherever you fit on the spectrum that you just read. Now most of us are not sociopaths, so I would say like that when you read the the triad there, mm-hmm. um, most of us don't exhibit sociopathic behavior, which is a complete disregard for other human beings.
0: Mm. Sociopaths and psychopaths essentially the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We we just use the term interchangeably, right? Okay. So what you're saying is most of us aren't psychopaths. So that is the the that rounds out the the dark triad here. How do we know if uh, how do I know if I'm a narcissist?
1: Mm-hmm. Narcissist, the fact that you're asking that question means you're probably not because narcissists would never ask themselves that question. So <laughs> narcissists do not self-reflect. They, they don't, they aren't interested in, you know, people calling out some of, some of the things that they're doing and, and how that lands on other people. So they, they don't care really. They don't really even, they're not aware and they don't care to know mm-hmm. how their behavior affects other people.
0: Okay. Mm. So, so what about Machiavellianism? So the, the, the desire to use other people to the ends justify the means sort of thing. This, this does seem, especially in our culture, it almost feels like a learned behavior to some extent. We, we learn to get what we want. We must uh, use other people, or at least that's what we, we think.
1: Well, I think in some ways we're all using other people, but not in a bad way, not in a Machiavellian way, right? Okay. So you want love, right? Mm. So you're going to be loving towards someone, mm. knowing that you're going to get love back. Yes. That that just, you know, and people don't even want to look at love that way, but it's true, you know, how, how, how are we in relationship with others? Mm. Um, but I think what you're talking about is just... Using people with no regard for who they are and no appreciation of who they are and doing things that are immoral or unethical, Mm -hmm. um, which is different. And usually people like that either feel very insecure about themselves and and getting the thing is is like life threatening to them. They they have to have that or they feel like they don't exist. So they will do anything to get the thing that will give them this jolt of self-esteem mm-hmm. that they imagine will make them feel worthy of existence,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which basically means worthy of love because why do we exist for love?
0: Mm. Yes.
3: So, yeah. so reading those, those three things, um, you posited that everyone is a little bit of all those things they well no 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 not that, not, yeah. not not so,
1: sociopathic and not necessarily Machiavelli <laughs> okay. but, 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 but when but we the, talk about personality disorders that. yeah yeah
3: but but the but but the article does posit that everyone is a little bit so is there is there a healthy level of narcissism is there a healthy level of machiavellianism is there a healthy level of uh, sociopath I mean is well, it,
0: it seems like psychopathy and and Machiavellianism are both immoral in some way, meaning inflicting harm on other people. Okay, directly, right? Uh, however, narcissism—you can have a narcissist, right, who isn't directly harming other people. They're just so self-obsessed.
1: They tend to harm other people. They—they they wreak havoc on relationships. They're—they're mm-hmm. they're very insensitive to the needs and wants of the people around them. Mm-hmm. So you don't want a narcissistic parent. I see a yeah. lot of people, you know, who comes to therapy a lot of times, oh, right? Are you talking about
3: my dad. Perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so a narcissistic parent can have a really big impact on a child because the child doesn't understand that it's about the the parent mm-hmm. and not them. And they think like something is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I am unlovable is mm-hmm. the message that the child takes away. Not like something is wrong with my mom or my dad. Yes. Um, so you don't want a narcissistic parent at all. You don't want a narcissistic partner. We have on the podcast, on the Dear Therapist podcast, we have one of our episodes in season two is, is going to be with a woman who's uh, divorced from her husband that she says is narcissistic. We mm. aren't so sure, um, mm. as you're hearing the episode. But, um, but, you know, and then he's remarrying someone else and he's kind of repeating that behavior that narcissists do, which is they put on a really good show
2: in the Mm, beginning, mm.
1: right? That's, they seduce people. They're very seductive um, and they put on a really good show. Mm. And so he's remarrying someone and she's remembering how he was like that to her in the beginning. And then, you know, later things changed where his needs became paramount and and hers didn't seem to matter so
0: much. Mm. So with respect to narcissism, if we can acknowledge that we all may possess some, some traits that are narcissistic, we can acknowledge those without being a narcissist ourselves, well, right. right? So there's
1: a difference between a diagnostic category, which is you meet all the criteria in a consistent way. So mm. personality disorders are something that happens consistently. Mood disorders are something like, you know, anxiety might be situational. Um, sometimes it, it's something that pervades, you know, your life uh, in, in, a, in a way that it's there all the time in, in to different degrees. Um, but personality disorders are a way of relating in the world. Mm-hmm. But people used to think that they were fixed and they're not. Mm. So people used to think, oh, you have borderline personality disorder, you have narcissistic personality disorder, um, then that's how you're going to be throughout your life. People can actually respond to therapy, especially borderline personality disorder. Narcissists, again, tend not to come to therapy because they don't think they have a problem.
0: Okay. <laughs> in fact, if they did come to therapy, would it be because? It's to complain
1: about the other person.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah, borderline,
1: borderline personality disorder people come because they, they have a history of unstable relationships. They can never keep a relationship and they have this, these incredibly dramatic relationships and at a certain point they're like, what is going on here? Mm. This keeps happening.
0: Let's move on to the light triad, which they coined in this article. It's something I had never heard of before. They talk about uh, Kantianism, which is treating people as ends unto themselves, not as means. So sort of the opposite of Machiavellianism in a way. Faith in humanity, believing in the fundamental goodness of humans. And then humanism, valuing the dignity and worth of each individual. Man, these all sound like aspirations for someone like me where I don't want to treat people as the means to get what I want but also recognizing as as you alluded to a moment ago people can be useful I can be useful in a relationship as well in fact that's when I feel most alive is when I'm being useful to other people. I hate, however, feeling like I'm being used. Mm. And so the light triad here is is sort of, um, I mean, it seems to me that we could just say we could use the word compassion and maybe just cover all of that in a way.
1: I think we all need each other. So in that sense, we all use each other. But the way that you're using the word used sounds like there's no appreciation, there's no gratitude, and there's no reciprocity. Yes. Mm. So reciprocity is really important. It's like, hey, can you help me out with this thing? And also, how can I help you out? Mm. Um, And I really appreciate that you did this thing for me. That was really helpful for me. That's very different from, I'm just gonna use this person. I don't care about who they are as a human being. I don't care about, I, you know, I don't really even feel grateful to them. In fact, I feel entitled. I feel like they should help me. Yes. And that mm. you can feel that when people, you know, people ask favors all the time. Um, and you can feel that sense of entitlement, like that they expect you to do that for them. Right. Right? right. Mm-hmm. That's very different. And so people are much less inclined to do things for you. if they come with a sense of entitlement or a sense of like um, lack of appreciation or lack of gratitude.
0: I think that one word entitlement could sum up the dark triad really well. And and, I mean, it does, it's not comprehensive, but it's a nice little summary. And, And then compassion, I think it sums up this light triad. These are things that we aspire to be, to value the dignity and worth of each individual how beautiful is that, right? Uh, Without needing something from you, needing to change you or requiring something from you. However, if we can be, you know, Ryan and I are useful to each other. I would feel terrible if he felt like I was simply using him to be on the podcast because we need a a toothsome guy on the podcast or whatever. (laughs) Well,
1: I was going to say people who grow up and don't see the the worth of other people tend to be people who did not feel worthy as children wow. so they never got the modeling first of all that you know sometimes they grew up in households where their parents did not you know were, were rude to waiters or um used people or you know they saw those kinds of attitudes in mm-hmm. their parents and so they don't really understand that every one of us is valuable and worthy. That's and right. and we need to make sure that we communicate that to people and we treat people in that way mm-hmm. um, and I'm not like trying to be all Kumbaya here but I think that this is something that um, as we grow older we start to notice wait a minute what are my values how do yeah. I want to be treated how do I want to treat people and so you might not have seen your parents do that but also they might not have treated you that way thats right and so if you grow up feeling like well I'm a can I say, can I swear on here? Yes. No, I'm a piece of shit, right? Um, then then you grow up treating people like a piece of shit. Yeah, That's what happens. It's um, like an externalization of how you feel about yourself. So the people who are the most unkind tend to be the people, just think about this. If someone treats you unkindly, they probably feel, they're probably even worse to themselves. They're probably even more unkind to themselves. So maybe have a little compassion for, it's hard to have compassion for people who are not kind. But usually they are, triply unkind to themselves
0: yes yeah, yeah. so uh, my favorite bi- bible verse is um uh when jesus is up on the cross they have, forgive them father for they know not what they do right yeah, and yeah. it's like wh- where wherever you are on the, the the religious or spiritual spectrum like that one little bit there it's having compassion even for the people you perceive to to, to be harming you is i mean what a virtue yeah we got so much to talk about. we got some surprise questions before we get into them. By the way, we'll put a link to this article in the show notes if you want to read the full article. It is a long one. But, Ryan, I thought maybe we could... um, You often talk about mommy and daddy issues. You have a therapist right here. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Oh, man. Where do I begin? It all started when I was born in 1981. No, I I mean, I feel like um, what we talked about in the minimal episode, I'm going to seek... some you know some therapist online where my mom and i can get together and like just kind of hash things out Uh, and and i understand like you know her and i are in this position to where like you know she brought a man into the house after she divorced my dad uh he literally like kicked me from one room to another Mm. and she just like uh, uh, the first time he ever did it she was laughing Mm. and i'm like as an adult i'm like mom like if i had a son who was getting kicked across the room i would protect my son
0: yeah and i would I beat the fuck out of this guy
3: yeah and i would i would not continue a relationship with someone who was so abusive but yet you went on to marry him and have four kids but i also understand that there's trauma that my mom didn't deal with there's a childhood background that i don't truly understand she was you know being with that abusive person was certainty for her um the relationship that she's in now i mean it's 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 like neutral now, like it's not a good relationship, but she's still with them. So, so for me, and then she asked me, like, well, here's what you need to do as a son, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm, like here's what okay. you need to do as a mother, yeah. So, so that's kind of where we're at.
1: <laughs> so there's this exact story, and maybe you should talk to someone about this woman Rita who comes to me, and she um, was married. to She got married very young. She married this guy who ended up becoming an alcoholic and abusing their children, their four children, and she didn't do anything about it because mm-hmm. she was afraid to leave mm-hmm. and she was afraid of what would happen to her if, if she left and how would she support herself and what would she do with these kids and what would happen. Mm-hmm. And finally one day, um, when one of the kids, uh, overdosed, uh, did not die and, but it was like a quasi suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, I'm out we're, we're leaving. We're le- she made this whole plan and then she took the kids and she left. But the kids of course were like, didn't want to talk to her Were estranged from her, um, Mm. you know, so angry that she did not protect them. Mm. And, um, and so it's the story of what happens to them as adults. Mm. And this is where the forced forgiveness comes in that she wanted something from them. She wanted to say, I, you know, like, I'm so sorry and I need you to forgive me and understand. And what I was saying is you can have compassion Mm -hmm for someone. But that doesn't mean that you forgive them. And that was the only way that as adults they actually could start to have a relationship when she stopped needing something from them and started to be the mother that they needed now
2: mm-hmm. as adults. Yeah.
1: And I think that this happens with estranged parents and adult children all the time where The the adults feel so rejected by their children that they're like, Well, I need this from you. And I always say to those parents, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to understand where your adult child is coming from. You need to understand their experience. This will come later, the other part of it. But right now you still, even though they're adults, you're still the parent Mm -hmm. and you need to understand them first.
3: Yeah. No, I mean her and I have like we've come a long way. And I've been what I just voiced to you, I have voiced to her. So this isn't news to her. Um, She has voiced some, you know, some things with me. We are moving forward, but I do think there is some stuff that like her and I could certainly work out. But I I do remember she used to get on this kick of blaming all her kids for her problems.
2: Mm.
3: And I remember one time she was like going on and on and on. And, you know, you kids and blah, 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 blah. And you moved to Montana and my kids don't do this. They don't do that. I'm like, mom, we are a reflection of you. Like you birthed us. If you don't like us, then you don't like yourself. And that really, uh, that got to her, and she has now. I've seen her take more ownership instead of Mm. pointing the finger and saying, "Oh, well, because you know, because I I have a brother in prison right now." Mm. Oh, you know, she she doesn't sit there and be like, "Oh, well, because you know, your brother's in prison now. I I live a miserable life." Mm. Like now, she can kind of separate herself from from her kids. I don't. I mean, I don't know if that's the right thing to tell her, but but that's how I feel. It's like, hey, we're a reflection of you, mom. Yeah.
1: So so here's I understand what you're saying. I think you know in in episode 2 of Dear Therapist podcast mm-hmm. um we have this guy Jason on and his very similar situation to what you're describing mm. and what he doesn't understand and what he understands by the end of the episode is like this war that he has going on that he had going on with his parents this, it became an internal war and the war is over. Like, mm. I think that we don't realize that as adults. Like, the war is over. Yeah. We are free. Yeah. Peace time is here. Oh. But we can't embrace peace time because we're still at war. Yeah. Right? Mm. Um, so I really highly recommend listening to that episode. But when out. you talk about being a reflection of your parents, mm-hmm. I think that as parents, what we need to understand, I'm a parent too, we're all parents here, is that um, your kids, uh, our job as parents is to get to know who our kids are. They are separate people from us. They are their own people. Mm-hmm. And our job is to understand who they are, not who we want them to be, not mm-hmm. to mold them into something that we want them to be, to let go of any ideas about who they are supposed to be, mm-hmm. but to get to know who the actual person is right in front of you and to embrace that person. Yeah. And then separately, when you say reflection, to understand that what we do will impact them. How we treat them will impact how they treat themselves, what they do with their lives. Mm. And I don't mean to put pressure on parents because there's this phrase, the good enough parent. Mm. So there's this Winnicott, Donald Winnicott was this English psychiatrist and, and his famous phrase was when he did all this research, he found nobody needs to be the perfect parent. The kids who have the best outcomes had good enough parents. Mm. So you make mistakes, but you repair them. You say, Mm. I'm really sorry that I yelled at you or I lost my temper. Here's what happened. Now you can't yell at them every day, but, (laughs) but the point is that, that you, it's called rupture and repair, Mm. that you will always have ruptures, but you repair them. Yeah. Um, and so you just need to be the good enough parent, mm-hmm. but when you you start to say you know like my you, you know you blame your kids for how they how they turned out, mm-hmm. it's kind of like what did I do that that led my kid down this path? What were yeah. they missing? What did they not get? And then not to self-flagellate, but to say how can I support? this person now that I love so much,
2: mm, right? What yeah. can
1: How can I be the best parent now? I can't change what I did in the past, mm-hmm. but what can I do right now to be the best parent possible for what they want? Not how I see them or not mm-hmm. how I see their life, but what they need from me. And the best way to do that is to ask them, how can I be supportive to you? How can I be there for you? Yeah. Not to guess, but to actually ask.
3: Yeah, no, I love this because uh, it makes me think about how my mom has been doing this, like without you know, wording it that way. She really has been trying to be a different parent. Cause I mean, the, the one thing I remember telling her one time too, I'm like, mom, all we, all, all of us kids want from you is for you to like live a good life. Like that's, that's all we want. And blaming us for you not having a good life. Like that's just an endless circle. I feel like, yeah, no, that's good. I, uh, I look forward to kind of working. She's actually coming into town um, the first couple weeks of August. So uh, she's bringing my little niece out with her, but we're going to have a great time. Like I'm not even like, you know, trepidatious or worrying about anything because we have really done a lot of work over the last few years. Now, my dad, on the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, I'll just tell you a synopsis of what's going on and then um, kind of where I'm at with it right now. And maybe there's some help or maybe you can just look at me and be like, yep, you're doing great. (laughs) And that'll be fine too. I was raised a very strict Jehovah's Witness and I left the religion mid-20s, late 20s. And uh, I now live with my my significant other who I call her my wife. I'm going to, I plan on being with her the rest of my life, but we don't have like the certificate that says we're married. So my dad refuses to talk to me Mm -hmm. based upon the fact that um, I'm living with a woman without that piece of paper Mm -hmm. and that I'm no longer uh, a Jehovah's witness. In fact, I have kind of expressed to him because you know, I had all this programming. I expressed to him why it was important for me to deprogram from this. So to him, you know, he looks at me almost as like an apostate of like, mm-hmm. well, I can't speak to you because of these reasons. So where I'm at now, I used to, and this is where I went and talked to a therapist, um, just a couple of years ago, because I kept waking up with this internal battle going on. Mm-hmm. I like found myself having these conversations with my dad over and over and over again. And I'm like, all right, I have to like talk to someone to see how I can filter this out. And when I got out of that, that therapy was, Hey, Ryan, um, It's not because I used to blame it on the religion because I would be like, oh, if he would just not be a Jehovah's Witness, it would would be so different. You know, if I could just help him see how he's programmed, if I could help him deprogram, he'd be a much better dad. And the therapist was like, no, Ryan, like it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses fault. Like that is uh, if first he asked me, he's like, do you know anyone else in your situation that has Jehovah's Witness parents? They're not Jehovah's Witness. I'm like, yeah. And he was like, and do they have a relationship with their parents? I'm like. It's not a very good one, but yeah, their parents still still talk to him. He's like, "So this isn't Jehovah's Witnesses' fault. This is your dad being a bad dad," and giving me that lens to look through. Just, I, I don't want to call him a bad dad, as in yeah. I was
1: I was just gonna say yeah. I think okay, so this is this is the hard thing for people to hold on to, and they're two very different ideas, um, and you have to hold on to both at the same time, which is, you know, what your dad is doing is really affecting you mm-hmm. in a negative way yeah um, is he a bad person um, you know and so so I, I think that that one of the things that that people don't realize is that when parents do these things what I was saying before is most parents really want the best for their kids even the parents who are like abusive and awful and you could say well how could that be mm-hmm. um, because they don't want to be that way right mm-hmm. um, they don't know any different that doesn't excuse it at all um and so with so with you it's kind of like your dad really thinks that you would live a better life if you were a jehovah's witness and you were married Mm -hmm. like he actually thinks that that would be better for you right and so that's the thing that's (laughs) that's so confusing right because he's like i'm i'm i don't want you to go on this path because you're gonna have you're gonna have a bad life yeah if you do this so if you can see it through that lens Mm -hmm. um It makes it a little bit more understandable because he's actually worried about you.
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: And if he didn't care about you, if he didn't, you know, if he if he wasn't invested in you, if he didn't love you, he would just be like, "Go do whatever you want to do and Mm -hmm. live whatever life you want to live." But because he loves you so much, Mm -hmm. he cares, and he's worried that you're on this path that is going to lead to whatever bad outcome he has in his mind, as irrational as it is. Basically, right, right. Well,
3: you know, when I say bad dad, really, what I mean is an experienced dad. Like he just doesn't, he has he, a- He's li- limited. Yeah, he's limited. There's mm-hmm. a level of understanding he doesn't have. I do appreciate, and, and this is where I'm at with it now, I do appreciate how much he loves me. Because I know, he, he was a very feminized father. Like, you know, he he had no problem telling me he loved me, he had no problem giving me a hug. Every time I see him, I've only seen him a couple times in the last few years, he will break down crying.
1: Mm-hmm. Isn't it sad that we have to call that feminine as opposed to human?
3: I know. Right. Mm. Yeah, I know.
0: No, I, so I agree. I, I agree with that um, because as, as the, the, the masculine side of things, yeah, in, in fact, we can often conflate the stoicism I was talking about earlier yeah. with being unloving, but it's po- it is possible to be stoic and compassionate as yeah. well. I'm going to start using compassionate.
3: Yeah. You know, rather than feminine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or, or, or he, human. Was yeah, How about that? he was yeah, affectionate.
3: affectionate. Yeah. He was, a affectionate. He was a very affectionate. He was a very affectionate father. Yeah. Yeah. So I know the love is there and I know like him actually not talking to me is it's hurting him, but in some weird, again, the programming tells him like, Oh, if you're hurting, then you're actually on the right path. If you're suffering,
2: then Mm, you're on the right
3: path. And I don't know how to, you know, and there isn't a way. And I, and that's, that's where I'm at now. It's like, I know that he loves me. I can appreciate, I can even, I've even got to a point where it's like, I do want my father to, to live a good life. I want him to be happy. And if that means not talking to me, there is a level that I can support him and be like, okay, like if 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 you can live a if you feel like you can live a better life without having your son and his daughter for that matter, because he doesn't talk to my sister either, his daughter. I mean, so I he's
1: ha- he's cut himself off from you.
3: Yeah, and, and my sister for man. how long? How? Um, he probably started it like f- like four years ago. Now,
1: you haven't talked to him in four years?
3: Well, the talking is like I could show you our text messages, and it's like. Hey man, I'll just text him. Hey, thinking about you. Love you, man. Uh, Yeah. You know, I love you too, son. And then that's it. But like he would never answer my phone. So the last time I had a phone conversation with him Mm -hmm. four years ago. Mm. Um,
1: Have you ever told him how, what it's like not to have contact with him? Oh
3: yeah. In fact, he knows he uses it as leverage to get us to go back to being Jehovah's witnesses. He knows how hurtful it is. There are videos that Jehovah's witnesses put out that, Again, the programming, it's like, hey, this is going to hurt your kids, and that's a good thing, because then hopefully they'll have enough pain and come back to the truth. So... God, that's gross. I know, it is. So... So, so the
1: thing about, so it's interesting because we we've had someone on the podcast who was dealing with this who was gay and, and the parents wouldn't like basically cut him off and um, you'll hear it in season two but okay. the, the thing is it's like there's this idea that these parents have that, you know, God is saying this or some mm-hmm. external force is saying this when sort of God or spirituality or whatever it is is inside of us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so this idea that like what kind of God would say, don't talk to your child, mm-hmm. like cut off this, this. you know, hurt your child in this way. What kind of God would say, don't love another human being? Oh, yeah. And so there's this, this real sort of disconnect between, um, you know, values and religion and, and, and what's really happening between the two of you. And you might have a conversation with your dad, if he'll, you know, and maybe you send it to him or whatever yeah. you do if he won't talk to you, mm-hmm. um, where you, you, tell him your ideas about this that, you know, I don't know what kind of God would say, don't, don't like love your child. Don't be in contact mm. with your child, hurt your child. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might have some boundaries yourself. Like, you know, does, is it more painful for you to text him and get, I love you son back and then feel the distance mm. or would it be, you know, where he kind of gets both, like he gets to know that you are thinking about him, but he doesn't have to let you know, really. Yeah. Like it comes from you. And what if you said to him, you know, when you accept me as the person that I am, mm-hmm. um, I would love to have a relationship with you. Yeah. And then he has to sit with, I may never hear from my son again. Mm-hmm. And what, what might that do? Yeah. So these are all, you know, these are longer yeah. conversations yeah. and yeah. considerations. But these are all
3: interesting approaches. And I, I'm, like I said, like right now, I'm just kind of at the point where my dad has his own battle that he's fighting every day and the only way that I can draw closer to him is t- to support him in his battle and the way to support him is to not uh is to not try to contact him all the time To because tr- I used to send them you know articles and messages like hey man like you're, you're being brainwashed man like I just please understand that like the Bible isn't telling you to do this. It's this organization, your part. And that's how I used to approach it, which just pushed him further away. Yeah.
1: That's, I was going to,
3: yeah. So it's like, yeah, now I'm just, uh, yeah, I just, I, I just respect his battle. I, I do what I can. Um, maybe cutting the contact off cause I do initiate the,
1: well, right. But the, explaining to him that, you know, I really love you and I know that you love me and, um, but it's too painful for me to be, you know, in, in the relationship that we're in now. Mm -hmm. And if you ever decide you want to have a real relationship with me, I would love that. Um, But this is just too painful. And so I'll, I'll, you know, if you decide you want to get in contact with me, great, but I'm not going to be contacting you anymore.
0: Yeah. You're drawing a new boundary. Yeah. And,
1: and, and then, and then Mm -hmm. you see sort of what he does with that, but really a boundary people have this misconception about boundaries that boundaries are, I'm going to get the other person to do something. Mm -hmm. You know, like my boundary is you can't yell at me anymore. And then the person yells at you and you're like, but that was my boundary, Mm. you know? And and that's not what a boundary is. A boundary is what is my boundary with myself? What will, I will give my request to the other person. And then what will I do? What is my boundary with myself if they behave in a way that is not okay with me? So you say to the other person, I really don't like it when you yell at me. Mm. And then the person yells at you and then you decide what you're going to do with that. Maybe it's, I'm going to leave the conversation right now and I'm going to go take a walk or I'm going to say to them, you know, we'll talk about this another time mm-hmm. when we're both able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe if you've asked them enough and they won't stop yelling at you, you say, this is not the right relationship for me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I've I've tried and I my boundary with myself is I'm not going to stay in a relationship where I get yelled at all the time. Yeah. So what is your boundary, meaning you make a request, but your boundaries with yourself, what are you going to do if X happens?
3: Yeah, I really, yeah, I do need to set boundaries up because at this point with my father, I'm just like, you know, I have this hope. But you
1: you have a lot of grieving to do that I think you haven't mm, done. And I think think that, you know, if you do decide that you're going to um, let him know how painful this is and let him know that, you love him and, and you, you're, you know, this is extremely, this is really painful for you, mm-hmm. um, that you would love to have a relationship with him and, and you're not gonna contact him anymore because it's not really reciprocated. Yeah. And if he wants to reach out, you would absolutely welcome that and see what happens yeah. and do your grieving.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, oh, that's, it's really helpful. Thank you very much for listening to my mommy and daddy issues. <laughs> we could talk more about They're grieving. not, they're not
1: simple. <laughs> no. no, amen. <laughs> definitely well,
0: not. yeah, and they're definitely not easy, Right. No. right? Wow, we got some surprise questions here. How about we dive into a few of these? We got one from Nadine. How do you help someone who you know is struggling with anxiety or depression
3: while maintaining your own self-care?
0: Now, isn't this quite often a problem? We we will sacrifice our own well-being in order to help others. Sometimes they may not even want help. So maybe is, is that the first question to ask? Does the other person actually want help? Mm-hmm. Well,
1: first of all, they might not even realize what's going on with them so and they might have a lot of shame around it so if you say to them you know you have a lot of anxiety or you seem depressed or whatever it is um they might say no i'm not no i don't Mm. or i'm just really stressed
0: right now it feels like blaming in a way
1: yeah Yeah. and yeah and it feels like you're saying something's wrong with them yes and so, you know, it depends who the person is, by the way, too. Like, is it a friend that you don't live with? Is it your partner? Is it a family member? Who is the person? But I think if it's someone that you live with, so if it's someone that you don't live with, um, one thing you can do is is stop enabling the like what is happening. So they might, you know, say, "Oh my gosh," and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And it's like the same story over and over. And you know, not to say to them, "How are you." Right? Mm. Like just that could open up these floodgates. And it, yeah. it, it, it really becomes a thing where you just say to yourself, I enjoy certain things about this person, but I'm not gonna get into the hour long conversation about whatever it is with them because I'm just sort of enabling that and they're not gonna change and they they're what we call help rejecting complainers. Ooh. You know, those people, yes. so help reach. I talk about this in my Ted talks, the help rejecting complainers are people who, they're always saying like, you know, oh, this is what's going on and it's so awful and I'm stuck and I can't switch jobs or this is happening with my partner or whatever mm-hmm. they're complaining about. And then you say, well, here's something you could do. And they're like, no, that won't work because, Mm. and then you're like, well, what about this? Nah, that's impossible (laughs) because, right? So they really don't want help. They actually are serving them in some emotional way to complain. Mm. Like they don't want to get rid of the problem because the complaining is something that serves them.
0: Yeah. So what do I do in that scenario? I have a friend who complains a lot mm -hmm. and uh, he or she, anytime around, it's it's really draining to me. I don't want to be like, hey, stop complaining. Uh, because that doesn't feel loving either. But at the same time, I, I, I feel like I, I would just throw my hand. And really, the the thing is I withdraw from that relationship. Right. The more they complain, the less engaged that I feel compelled to help, but I know that in a way I can't
1: right. So you can do something very daring, which is to say, you know, every time I, I I really feel a lot for what you're going through, every time I try to help, I feel like I'm not being helpful. Uh-huh. Um, so um, maybe, we could, so coming to me with this is actually not gonna help you, but uh-huh. I really care about you. So maybe we could like hang out in a different way and maybe you could get help from someone who might be more effective in helping you. Mm. Like maybe talk to a therapist or talk to another friend who might be more helpful than than I am.
0: Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and if their default stance is to constantly complain, to turn anything into mm-hmm. a complaint, um, I think quite often we don't realize that we're complaining because it becomes,
1: it's conversation. It's not a complaint, Ooh, it's conversation. Yeah. Yes. For them, it's conversation. Right. But for so us, it. it's, a, it's a constant barrage of complaints.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah, I did this thing a few years ago where it was just some weird challenge I saw online. It was don't complain for 30 days. It completely changed my life. You wear a rubber band, you snap yourself every time mm-hmm. you, you, you complain. And it radically shifted my perspective because I didn't realize how much I was complaining.
1: Negativity is contagious. It is so contagious. We talk about the coronavirus. I'll tell you what happened during COVID. So many people were in close quarters with other people. And if there was negativity going on, it spread like wildfire. It's contagious. Mm, Yes. And so that's why friends like that really have an impact on us because it's not just that they're complaining during that, but after the phone call or after the coffee or whatever it is, then we're in a bad mood. Right. Because we caught it. It's contagious. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then we spread that to others if yes. we're not careful, right? Yes. Mm. And, and there's no mask or vaccine for complaining <laughs> yet.
1: <laughs> well, there is setting a boundary. That's, oh, that, that's yeah. the vaccine. Oh, yeah. that's
0: beautiful. Yeah, that's good.
3: Katrina has a question for us, Ryan. <sighs> Man, there's definitely something pithy there. Setting a boundary is the vaccine for uh, complaining. All right, Katrina, you can't tweet that. You'll be shadow banned. <laughs> <laughs> Sean will make it look nice in post. All right, uh, Katrina, is anxiety the enemy? What's the difference? Anxiety, depression, grieving.
0: What is the role of the ego in these negative feelings? Ooh, it's interesting that she cataloged grieving as a negative thing, and I can understand that, like, because we we maybe we, it's an emotion we don't want to have to deal with, and so we could look at it negatively, but grieving is part of a process
1: well first of all i don't think we should categorize any feelings as good or bad Amen. you know yeah. we tend to say like this is, joy is a good feeling and you know sadness or worry those are those are bad feelings yes. um they're information i always say you want to feel your feelings and you want to know what they are because they're very useful they tell you what direction to go in they're like a compass our feelings are like a compass they tell you where to go even something like envy right we're like oh i don't want to feel envious of someone but it tells you something about desire. It tells you, I want something like that. Mm -hmm. So then it might motivate you to do something about it. Like maybe I want to switch jobs or maybe I want to try this thing that I, you know, that I've been afraid to try. Um, Sadness. What is not working in your life? What is Mm -hmm. causing that anxiety? Something is not working if you're feeling anxious. So what do I need to do about this? If you don't acknowledge your feelings, it's like, it's like, driving around with no GPS. You don't know what direction to go in.
2: That's right.
1: So you need to use your feelings as a guide for what direction to go in. Mm. And when we talk about grief, by the way, so it used to be that in the DSM, which is the diagnostic, diag- diagnostics, the diagno- I don't even know. I can't even say. <laughs> but it's basically the Bible of diagnosis for <laughs> therapists. Uh-huh. Diagnostic statistical manual. Um, it's a mouthful. But um, they they used to categorize um, grieving would turn into a diagnosis of clinical depression if you were still grieving after like two months or something.
2: Oh. And, it was,
1: and it was ridiculous. And therapists were just up in arms around this and it got changed now. Good. But it used to be that it was called bereavement, uh-huh. right? And the diagnosis of bereavement changed into a diagnosis of depression. If you were still in bereavement, after two months, that's insane. Yeah. Like the person who died is still dead, yes. right? You know, it's, it's not like that change. Right. Um, or whatever the grief is, you know, there's, there's all kinds of silent losses too, like someone has a miscarriage, right? But you didn't lose an eight year old child and everyone thinks, well, you should be okay. You bounce back from that, but that's a loss. Yes. There are all kinds of losses that people have. Um, and often silent losses, like someone who's single, who really wants to be um, in a relationship, Right? There's this ambiguous loss of will I ever meet the You're grieving for someone that you haven't met yet. Like you haven't, Ooh. you don't, the loss of someone that you don't have yet. Mm. And that you may never have, you don't know what's going to happen. That's right. So there's all kinds of loss that people are walking around with all the time. So when we talk about grief, I think it's really important to understand the nature of grief, that it's always there, but it's less sharp maybe at different times, or it comes back at different times in different ways. You hear a song that reminds you of the person, right? Um, And then it just brings you right back there where you were just doing fine that day. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Or the anniversaries of, of someone's birthday or, or, you know, whatever it is that, Mm. that reminds you. Um, so, uh, So I think we need to use these feelings and to know that it's natural to feel grief, that it's a sign of how much you were loved and how much you love that person.
0: That's right. We have a friend, Joanne Cacciatore, who wrote a book called Grieving is Loving. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful sort of meditation on the, the entire grief process and, and a better understanding of grief because it's certainly not a negative feeling. Although sometimes it may not be desirable, but mm. yeah, you know, sometimes getting stuck in traffic is not desirable, but inevitably it happens. Yeah. Right. And then,
1: and then knowing sort of how can you, how can you manage grief? So it's not just like, well, you're just going to have to experience it, but it's also and and how can we help with Mm. this? What are the kinds of things that help? So for everybody, it's different. For some people, it's they really need to connect with somebody else. For somebody else, it might be, um, you know, they need some time to themselves. Right. Um, For other people, it might be, um, you know, I need to go to a grief group. Mm. So it just depends on the person. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So is anxiety the enemy? No, none of these emotions are the enemy. They are symptoms that. Like for me, when I feel anxiety or any of these other feelings, I can hold space for them and recognize, oh, like there's something going on right now that I that may need some attention. Well,
1: there's a difference, too, between productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. So productive anxiety is, um, you know, you're reacting to something that makes you anxious and you do something about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Take COVID, for example, right? So we were all worried about COVID. And so we wore masks, we socially distanced, we did all the things that that was incredibly productive. If you weren't worried about COVID, you probably would have gotten COVID. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Unproductive anxiety is ruminating about the thing, but doing nothing about it. So it's obsessive rumination during COVID. It might've been, you know, doom scrolling, um, or just talking about COVID all the time or worried about like what might happen, you know, but, but hasn't happened yet. Mm. That's a lot of unproductive anxiety for all of us is ruminating obsessively about something that hasn't happened yet and may never happen.
2: Mm, yeah, That's,
1: that's a bad place to be. Yeah. Okay. So productive anxiety is there's something that I'm worried about. What can I do about that in the present? Now, if there's nothing you can do about it in the present, it's not helpful to keep ruminating about it. Right.
3: Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Somebody told me once when I was in the corporate world, which I don't know if it was the right advice at that time, but I was talking about how stressed out I was. And they are like, hey man, a little stress is good for you. <sighs> but it, there is some truth to that. Maybe a little but, stress is good for you, but it's gotta be the, the productive type of stress maybe.
1: Well, stress of being overwhelmed and not liking your job is not good stress. Well, yeah, but, like, I said, well, like <laughs> but, I said. But good I, stress I, is, but there is good stress, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Good stress is something like, I have this big presentation to give and I'm nervous about it, but I also am really excited
2: about yeah, it, right? right.
1: Yeah. So you need to have some stress. If you were just like really chill about it, you probably wouldn't perform as well. In fact, they do studies of people taking tests and if they have some anxiety about taking the test, but not so much anxiety that it overwhelms them, mm-hmm. but just some anxiety because it, it gets your adrenaline going, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to to be different on the test and how you perform on the test. So we need a little bit of anxiety, yeah. Um, that's really helpful but too much can actually shut us down
0: yeah the dangers of excitement (laughs) (laughs) a memoir question from uh, sandra here when is mental health just a buzzword that justifies poor behavior this reminds me of what Ryan was talking about with his father earlier. Yeah, and if it weren't Jehovah's Witness, it, he may be battering Ryan with some other belief system, right? Sure. And the same thing could be true. Mental health is something we're finally talking about, but can someone use that as simply, well, yeah, yeah, the reason I behave this way is because of mental health issues, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's really what Sandra's asking here.
1: Right. Well, that's like saying the reason that I keep, you know, fainting is is because I have diabetes, but I'm not taking my insulin, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you might have a physical health issue or a mental health issue, but if you're not treating it, then that's the problem. So it's not the reason I behave this way is this, it's I know that I behave this way because I need to get treatment for this. Mm -hmm. So if I don't get treatment for this, then, then that's a big problem
0: uh what about timothy's question here can you talk about what happens when someone becomes dependent on their therapist Are there telltale signs have you encountered this in your in your practice
1: yeah so there's a woman and maybe you should talk to someone she's in her early 20s and she comes to me and she thinks that she is addicted to me and she she keeps trying to quit therapy because she thinks that her problem is that she's addicted to me she's actually addicted to alcohol Um, but she doesn't want to deal with that yet. And so when she finally realizes that she's addicted to alcohol, she realizes that she is not in fact addicted to me. Mm. But, um, But I do think that people can use therapy in a way that is not helpful to them. So we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you're not making changes out in the world between sessions then the insight is useless. So people might use therapy in a way that is not productive. Like they come to therapy every week, they, they download the problem of the week and they leave. Mm. And then they become dependent on that. Like this is the place where I can go because nobody else is gonna listen to this, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so then they go to the therapist. They're not doing anything in therapy. They're not working in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can create some kind of dependence. A good therapist will call that out and say, we're not doing any work here. Right? Yeah. You're not going to keep seeing someone in that context if they're not willing to do what they need to do. So you know, if somebody is coming to you and they learn something in that therapy session and then they, they go home and they're like, yeah, so I had this this argument with my partner and, and I'll be like, well, did you do something different? And they're like, well, no, but I know why I did it. Okay, well, that's a first step. But now this time you have to do something different. Don't just come mm-hmm. in and complain about the argument, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. Um so I think it's really important that people understand that the goal of therapy is to get you to leave. And nobody nobody really wants to look at that because it's weird because you form this very intimate relationship with somebody the whole goal of which is that you are going to leave that relationship. Yeah. But what happens is you internalize the therapist. So when you when you leave therapy even between sessions, you internalize things, you know, you hear your therapist's voice um, you hear conversations that you had and it helps you to stay grounded until it becomes your voice. And then it becomes, you're not hearing the therapist's voice anymore. You're hearing your own voice and you know what to do in that situation. You know, what's going on. You have access to your feelings.
0: Mm. Let's wrap up with one final question here up at the top. Ryan, Nathan has a question for us. It's a, it's a longer one, but I thought this would be the great way, a great way to end this episode.
3: Yeah. It's uh, a great one. I'm diving into love people use things. I came across a concept that's all too relevant, how addiction comes from a faded sense of meaning. It just so happens that recently I found out a dear friend of mine has become dependent on a few substances, especially alcohol. I remember from a previous podcast that you can't help those who don't want help. So I only talked with her about it as non-judgmentally as I could. She played along, and I can really tell she's feeling that her life has no meaning. Not only that, but she's telling me she doesn't want it to either. Mm. I'm worried by her current state, and as a human, my instinct is to help. I can tell she's not proud of it, but she also has no urge to change. So, should I leave it? Is there anything I can do to help her find meaning in her life, or is that overstepping? Her and I are pretty young, around the age where our adult life is only beginning. I don't want her to think child. I don't want to think her childhood is over and that the rest of her life has only suffering in store. What do you suggest I do?
1: Mm. Wow, so it sounds like she is really struggling. So this isn't just I have a friend who drinks too much. Mm. Um, this is somebody who really feels hopeless, yeah. and that's a real risk for suicide. Mm. and mm. and so I think people need to take that seriously. When someone says the words like, my life has no meaning or there's nothing to live for, and then they're drinking a lot to self-medicate, um, the self-medication won't work. It's not, you know, there are, there are going to be times when, you know, the person is sober and they're really struggling, or even the alcohol, you know, they're not even, it's not even working, the medication, the self-medication isn't even working when they're under the influence. Um, and so this is one of those times where people feel like, well, I don't wanna overstep. I don't wanna, you know, I don't I don't wanna do something or I don't wanna lose the friendship. Um, my son has this mental health platform, he's 15 years old and he has this mental, pla- mental health platform called Talk with Zach on Instagram. And he just interviewed somebody yesterday in an IG live about suicide and he asked this exact question. He said, what happens if you have a friend who's really in trouble, but they say like, don't tell anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And what the person said was, the expert that he spoke to, Jonathan Singer, he said, um, it's better to um, to have a friend who's mad at you than to have a friend who's dead. Ooh. And that just really hit me. Now, he was talking about teenagers, but I think it applies to adults too, right? Yeah. Better to have a friend who's mad at you than a friend who's dead. Mm. And so I would really suggest that this, per- you know, his friend is in trouble. Um, and there are, it's a little more difficult because you can't, um, you know, this person is an adult, so mm. you can't, there's not a lot you can do, but... Um, you can really talk to this person about here's a suicide hotline. Here's a, here a crisis text line. Um, can we call someone together about getting you some help because I don't want to see you suffer so much. Mm-hmm. There's only so much you can do, but I think just withdrawing and not doing anything um, is problematic. If you've tried, by the way, if you tried a lot, you can't devote your life to this. You know, people, you can't really change another person, but you can like full court press Get on this person mm-hmm. about I care about you. I love you. I don't want to see your life is not meaningless, but depression lies. Mm. Um, you you are not seeing. I always say to people who are depressed, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now.
2: Ooh. Mm.
1: And I want I I want him to say that to her You are not the best person to talk to you about you right now because your thinking is very distorted right now You Mm. cannot see the big picture right now Can we get you to somebody where you might be able to see things in a way that is not so distorted where you might be able to See the meaning the hope that you can't that I can hold for you right now that someone else could hold for you right now But you can't hold for you right now.
3: I'm wondering is there a way like or would it be appropriate for Nathan to set up a boundary of like Hey, um, when we're around each other, like, I feel like I just fuel this depression that you're in. And, um, you know, I really don't want to, and again, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but like, you know, I don't want to fuel your depression. So, um, you know, I'm going to, I I, I can't continue this relationship until you start to seek other avenues of help, because what I'm doing isn't helping. Is is there a way to set that boundary up in a kind and loving way or,
1: um, I, I think what you want to do is you don't want to cut someone off like that who probably might reach out at a certain point. So I would I would do it sort of part way,
2: mm.
1: which is you do the full court press like I just explained. Mm-hmm. You know, not like, oh my God, you need help, but the way that I the words that I used yes. in, in some way. Yes. And then and then you 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 know you do that enough, like you do that a few times. And if the person really doesn't respond, you can say it just it breaks my heart to watch you mm. go through this. Um, I'm available to you. If you want to get help and you want to reach out, I will do, I will do that with you. I will help you. I will, I will make those calls with you. I will even drive you there. Maybe like to the first appointment, whatever it is. Mm. Um, But this is, I'm watching you be, I'm watching you self-destruct and I can't watch you self-destruct, but, but come to me, my text me, call me anytime. If you want to get help, I'm here. Let's do it.
0: I love that. I love that. That's great. The only thing I would add here is the sense of meaning. I mean, not that I believe that there's inherent, an inherent meaning to life, but to me, that is an, an incredibly sort of eye-opening thing because we assign meaning to essentially anything. Unfortunately, we, we tend to assign meaning to everything, especially in our culture. It's to a lot of material possessions. We assign meaning to all of our things. Of course, if everything is sentimental, then, we, then nothing is sentimental, right? And so when I look at my life in terms of what is the, the meaning of my life? Well, I also get to determine that. What I find to be meaningful, what I find intrinsically. And so quite often we have these sort of mimetic meanings. Everyone else had said, has said something is meaningful to us. And I think some of that despair in your friend's case, Nathan, it might be that, hey, your friend has been told that these seven things should be meaningful. We're shooting all over ourselves because she's like, but I don't find these seven things meaningful. I tried that community center. I tried this church. I, I, I tried this meetup group. I tried this Facebook thing and whatever it was, I didn't find it meaningful. Everyone else seems to find meaning in it. There must be something wrong with me. Mm. Well, no, it's that, that just you don't find meaning in that. And that is okay. But there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of other things that you can find meaningful for you. Right, and also
1: um, depression tends to lead to this all or nothing thinking. That, you know, like, um, if I don't know, if I don't find that meaningful, then nothing is meaningful. Right, Mm. Um, and, and then looking on social media does not help because everybody seems to be living these, you know, curated lives that are not really real. And the other thing is she's so young that it takes people a while to really figure out what is meaningful to them. That's right. And so she's, you know, and, I, and I even no matter what age you are, sometimes, you know, you, you, you think something is meaningful and then later in life you say, no, that's not really meaningful and I, I'm finding something else meaningful. But she's not really giving herself a chance to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing is that because depression is so distorting of, of your thoughts, that she doesn't realize she has this friend who cares so much about her, yes. that is so meaningful. Do you know how many people do not have that friend who would mm. take the time to write into this show and say, I am so worried about my friend that I don't know what to do, please help.
2: Yeah,
0: mm.
1: There are many people who don't have that friend. She cannot see the meaning in even
0: that. That's beautiful. Yeah. What a great place to end it. Folks, check out Lori Gottlieb. Her book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. We'll put a link to that in the show notes podcast dear therapists i want to acknowledge you for doing something meaningful for the world amen thank you so much Lori. right
1: back at you thank you so much for the conversation
0: this was absolutely awesome thank you all right y'all love people use things we'll see you next time thank you so much patrons all right we're back but Lori is gone ryan and i were still talking after we finished wrapping up the episode i thought we would Hop in here for just a couple minutes and, yeah. and, and, and talk about this. You said something fascinating after the microphones were turned off. <laughs> well, I didn't want to, like, call you out. Why? This is this is the place to do
3: it. The I, nice yeah, club, so or disagree me out, please. because I love you, man. And, like, I don't want to because it felt like, um, it, well, I'll just say what I said. I want to go from there. I, I, I will let go of any emotion I had about why I didn't say it. And let's just move on. Um, so what I had said to Josh patrons is I said, hey, man, it seems really important for you to let people know how little you care about the accolade of being on the New York Times bestseller. And there's something there to unpack with, yes, you, you could care less about people knowing it, but you
0: really want people to know that you could care less about people knowing it. There's a few things here that, that are worth talking about. So how about you and I can talk about it together? Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I, I have certain... The reason I wanted to bring Lori onto the podcast is because she and I think so radically differently. Mm. Um, it, the, the, the reason I have an aversion to to therapy in that sense is I've tried it and it hasn't worked well for me. How so many times I, have you tried it? Four or five. Okay. Four or five different people. Three there. or four. Okay. I, I would say four, but three for sure. Okay. Um, and, and uh, three and a half different people.
3: How many, how many, um, how many different uh, diets, doctors have you tried for your gut health? How, how many protocols have
0: you been on? Sure. Yeah. Quite a few. Right. Right. So, um, but here's my point: is I've found something that works for me. That you might call it therapy. Yeah, uh, I, you could call it self reflection. You could call it whatever. Um, and and but what I like here is you and I can have this conversation separate from her, and and we can we can dive into. I think a deeper understanding together without without having a, another person here, to litigate it. Right? Yeah, sure. And, and so. I found a lot of value, especially with the two of you talking, because I I, I like having that additional perspective because it's not my perspective. Yeah, I think she's
3: pretty different from both of us to a large extent. But.
0: Yeah, and I tried not to disagree with her a whole bunch or anything like that. Yeah, me too. And and here's where I am with the with the New York Times bestseller list or whatever. There's a few things. One is a scam. The whole thing's a scam. Of course, I I I don't appeal to authority, and so that's like my big thing, right? and okay. anytime i catch myself appealing to authority the as soon as i notice the illusion it's like as soon as you know the mirage is a mirage you don't no longer see it as a mirage
3: yeah but in this sense you see the mirage as a mirage and it almost there's a visceral i don't know if it's anger i want to tell
0: other people it's a mirage
3: but there's something visceral yeah there's something visceral about like now you hold content for that
0: mirage yeah well contempt for for the for the fact that everyone else still sees it and, and recognizes it, it as a, a a beautiful water fountain that's just a mile away and we'll get there even though we're in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And, and so the Mirage here is the New York Times bestseller And this is something I'm only going to talk about on, on Patreon here. But the... The, the first off it's gameable our first our second book everything that remains mm-hmm. sold better than love people use things right it's not on the new york times bestseller list right and yet it's first you know whatever if you look at the amazon rankings or etc which again isn't a mirage it's simply a quantifiable sort sure. of thing yes um and even then that that's a comparison thing mm-hmm. and so we could talk about i'm i'm repulsed by comparison yes it I, is the thief of all joy it is mm-hmm. and yet 100%. What is the New York Times bestseller list other than a comparison list? It's oh, comparing your book to... I don't see it that way. But it, it is by definition a comparison. So he, yeah, here's I, the thing. If you are... So let's say your book is number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, That means... Well, that it sold a certain amount of copies in a week, right? And it sold more than anyone else who is not on the list. But so is the Amazon list. It's a quantifiable measure of hey, this book sold X amount of copies. That's true. It, it is. It is a point of comparison. Here's a difference. Hmm. Uh, even though I agree with you that it is, every book is on the Amazon bestseller list. <laughs> sure, top ten thousand. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. You're the uh, you're. Uh, book number 1,794,632. Yeah, but we're not, Josh. We're on the New York Times bestseller list. Right. And and so what does that do for me? Does it, does it give me a sense of significance? And if so, is this where I derive my significance from? Mm. And there is a piece of me who, as I said, on the main podcast or on the Maximal episode with Lori here, there was a piece of me who at a time really wanted that but as soon as I noticed that as an illusion Mm -hmm. I wanted I want it well because I told myself that that's going to make me happy and by the way pride is also an illusion uh because if you pride is a type of of comparison it becomes in a way a a sort of involuted value judgment in a way Mm. and and so I just want to be careful I, yes, I do value stoicism. I don't actually value telling people that I don't care about it, but what I do value is, is recognizing that this whole thing is an illusion. And if I... If I give credence to the mirage, then I'm simply fueling the illusion for everyone else. The book is an outstanding book, not because it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Right. Of course. Unfortunately, we conflate it. We say, oh, the great books, they must be on the New York Times bestseller list, Mm -hmm. right? But of course that's not true. Some of the greatest books in history have sold a few thousand copies, and that's it.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's it's almost like I hear I hear
3: you holding contempt for the person that you used to be, and you're working so hard to not be that person, and that's okay. Like this isn't a value judgment, man. Okay, but there is a way that I have found because I don't feel it's a good book, regardless. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I don't feel significant for being on that list of the New York Times bestseller. I don't. Uh, it, it's not. I don't feel like I'm on a pedestal. I don't feel like I'm better than them. Like I can just. I really can simply hold space for like, oh wow, like. This is an accolade that we have. And, and and if anything, I look at it and I'm like, what are we gonna do with that accolade? Mm-hmm. How, how, how are we going to
0: use that to further our message, to or our story, whatever we wanna look at? I, I, I like this approach. And so if you ask me this question, it's a utilitarian approach in a way. Sure. How, how can this accolade help us serve other people? Yeah. All of a sudden I'm on board completely, yeah. right? But generally, that's not in our society yeah. what accolades are. Yeah, but we ain't general. We yeah. ain't basic. <laughs> <laughs> ain't that the truth? So, uh, yes, love. People use things. It had a, a pretty decent first week, and it ended up on a list. And um, and that can be wonderful if it helps us serve other people. Mm-hmm. It can be detrimental to my own well-being if it if I start to need that and I really saw this with our first film by the way this is this is that's really what changed my opinion about a lot of this stuff is when that first film came out no expectation Mm -hmm. you know I love what you said on the minimal episode the pithy answer about to accept is to love to expect is to unlove well we accepted the first film for whatever it was we put it out in the world we accepted that Netflix didn't want it Mm. enough people liked it that Netflix did want it eventually after two no's yeah, and that was fine too, but we didn't need it. Right. But as soon as it hit the world and it was like, oh my God, so many people are getting this. How do I get more of this? How do I capture this pleasure, repackage it, manufacture it, Mm. replicate it Mm. so that I keep doing this? And oh, that mistakes. And and that's when the, the only argument that I had with Lori on, on this podcast is, well, no, excitement is not joy. Mm. In fact, often excitement is the thief of joy. I don't, did she say excitement was joy? No, well, no, she conflated the two though. She said, oh yeah, but wouldn't you want your daughter to feel that joy? I'm like, well, yeah, I want her to feel joy. Mm. Let's not, conf- the, there are two types of excitement. There's excitement or pleasure, whatever you want to call it, excitement that is a byproduct of joy, yeah, of enjoying something, right? And then there's the excitement that, we we tend to chase. Now you and I you know, think about the very first time you did opioids. We wrote about it in Love People Use Things. Oh my God, I will never forget. Right, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? Here's here's the irony of that. Mm. You enjoyed it, mm. and and you didn't expect it. You had, mm. because you had no you couldn't expect it. You right. had no sort of sense of comparison, right? Right. And and yet, as soon as you had it now you expected to get back there Mm. and so that excitement became the thief of your
3: joy and you know it's so true i never got back there that whole saying of like you you can never get back to that initial high yes it's true like you can't yeah
0: Um, and so i I just i simply don't want this to be that if if i get high off of it so to speak uh at any point it's it's during the writing process yeah and it's never from an expectation of it well it's just going so well that you feel that that sense of joy
3: yeah man i'm not high off of this accolade like i don't i feel very um if anything i'm like i'm just happy for us man i'm happy for you like this was a lot of freaking work man and yeah it doesn't mean anything particularly particularly, but what it does do is it just, I don't know, man, it's the, uh, I don't know how to say it. Uh, there's like a recognition piece of it that again, not needed, not, uh, not even something that I can use to like put you or me or whatever us on a pedestal, but there is a recognition there of like, wow, we are doing some meaningful work Mm -hmm. and it's, and it's really starting to take off. And being on that list, well, like you said, I mean, it is a mirage, but some people, they they see it, and they 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 see the mirage, they act off of it, and that's actually a good thing in this scenario, because I think someone sees this on the top 10, and they're like, oh, I'm going to check out that book by The Minimalist, let people use things, and it will help them to see uh, the mirage for what it is, maybe.
0: Yeah, and so, so, so if anything, if if the mirage points more people <laughs> toward the truth, yeah, then... Then I'm for the mirage. Yeah. But let's not treat the mirage as though it is the destination. The
2: minimalists. <laughs>